When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Supposed to get married? I'm gonna just swipe left. I just want somebody to share my life. Part of what makes it work is that it's yours. It's unique to your relationship. You can keep waiting for the fairy tale, or you can get on board with the new rules of relationships. If you watch me on the Drew Barrymore show, then you know this ain't your mama's love advice. This is Dates and Mates with Demona Hoffman. Hello, lovers. Welcome to another thrilling episode of Dates and Mates. I mean, this one is very thrilling. Look, relationships, they are not one size fits all. We each have unique needs and desires and origin stories and goals. And with so many people out there in the world today, there seems to be a match or two or three for everyone out there. You know, I'm not about soulmates. So hmm, there's a There are are many options, let's just say that. And coupling that with the fact that relationships have shifted from their origin of originally being financial commitments or commitments in the eyes of the state and of God, right? Now you have permission. You don't need my permission, but you have permission to build your own relationship, the one that really speaks to your heart and fills your soul. And that's what's really beautiful about dating today. We have choice, like we've never had choice before. So you can choose to be in a monogamous relationship like me. You can choose to be multi-amorous. You can choose to be a lifelong bachelor, a bachelorette if you want. And of course, anything in between. We get to decide the relationship types that best suit our lifestyles and the future that we have in mind. But whatever you choose, it all comes down to communication. That is what will determine how well you and your partner or partners connect and build and trust. And that is why I have Dedeker, Emily, and Jace, the hosts of the Multi Amory podcast, joining me today to talk about how to identify what you need from a conversation, how to use microscripts to manage difficult topics, and how to make repairs after things get heated. But first, I got a hot dish for you. It's short King Spring, and I'm going to tell you why. Then later in Dear Demona, I'll address this question. It's time for my brother to get back out there and date. How can I help him? All right, get your posse together, because it's time to dish. He's dating dish. Glam Magazine asks, why has height become such a significant factor in dating? Uh, This headline kind of made me giggle, because as a dating coach of over 15 years, I can tell you... Height has always been such a significant factor in dating, but we're talking about it now. And there's a thing called Short King Spring that I first heard about, I think, last spring. I'm sure it's been around longer than that, but it is the rise of the short man. (laughs) And it really is a revolution that I think you need to pay attention to. And if you're one of those people that's like, no, Demona, I'm not having it. I'm not hearing it. Only six feet tall and above need apply, please just stay with me for a second. So according to a study in the Journal of Family Issues, nearly 50% of women surveyed said that they want to date men who were taller than them. And if you're asking, well, how bad is this height 
bias. I mean, we got to call it a bias. It's a, a pre- okay, I'll call it a preference. I'll soften the language there. How bad is this height preference in dating? Well, women, they do like a tall guy overall. This study that was published recently said that most women want a partner who is a little over eight inches taller than them. So the average height of a woman in the United States, five foot four, the average height for a man, five foot nine. So now we're doing height math. That means that all those guys under six feet if ain't going to make the cut. So you know me. You know how I do my dating advice. I like to ask, why? How did we get here? Why do you have a preference? If you're like, yeah, that sounds like me. I'm 5'4", six feet or taller. 6'4", if you can get it. Basketball player tall, if they're available. <laughs> well, where does this come from? Because I don't see any of our attractions as just coincidental. Like, oh, you just happened to wake up and prefer somebody who has blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm. You just happened to say, you know what? I really want somebody who's taller because that's just what I'm attracted to. Attractions don't just, they, 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 they are not just innate. They come from somewhere. So, and I do a lot of this in my book, which will be out in January. F the fairy tale, it's called. <laughs> so we, we, we're effing the fairy tale right now. These, these beliefs, they get imprinted based on our family of origin, based on the media that we take in, based on the people in our circle that we listen to. And some people say, also based on genetics. So there's a ton of research that shows people are drawn to those who have similar height traits on a genetic level. And there's a lot in genetic attraction that I think we we set aside when we are looking for a partner. But when we look at it from a biological, anthropological standpoint, it could be that there are certain survival advantages that we saw as cave people (laughs) where, oh, this person's really tall, they're strong, they're healthy, therefore they would be good for procreation. I mean, that is really the origin of partnership, right? So there could be a connection there. But then when you think about how we live today and how height is not correlated with strength, with income, with uh, viability as a partner, we start to unpack, well, then why are we still wanting that? And some of it comes from the media. So it's not a secret, as this article states, the media makes a connection between masculinity and height. The average height for male characters in romance novels is six foot three. I love that that's so specific. <laughs> like Daniel Steele is like, And then I saw his six foot three body. (laughs) Doesn't do it for me. Maybe it does it for you. I don't know. But almost all male leads in movies and TV shows are taller than female co-stars. So that's what we get used to seeing. And that becomes what we start to think that we need. And then we go to dating apps where it's interesting I, I, I take issue with some of the data in this article about collaborative filtering, which is uh, an algorithm method that some dating apps use. They cite Hinge particularly in the article in the study. Collaborative filtering gives users suggestions based on the preferences of similar users. So 
what this means in non-science speak is that you are going to be shown people that they feel you might match with, who might find you attractive and they might be attractive to you because, duh, we're trying to match people for relationships to actually connect. Sure. But what they say about this collaborative filtering, which I, I've worked with a lot of dating apps, you guys. I don't think this is really what they say in the article. I don't think it's it's as sophisticated of, of oh, we're going to create a caste system where these people are going to be the the good people and these people are the bad people like that's not that's not what it's about but we've talked on the show about people feeling like they're shadow banned on dating apps which is also not a thing but that they feel like they're not seeing the quote tens <laughs> you're not seeing all the six foot four guys and it's not because you're not attractive it's it might be because People are not interacting with your profile, but that may be because of actions that you've taken, filtering that you've put on yourself in your settings, or it might be because of choices that you've made in the app. Like you have put too many filters on and therefore your pool has been shortened and then you're not being shown to as many people and then fewer people are seeing you and it's a vicious cycle. But also algorithms present people based on how you swipe as well. That I can affirm. So if you only swipe on people who are six, three and above, then you're going to see more people that are six, three and above, or you're going to see fewer options, no options at all. And there's been a lot of debate on dating apps, like some dating apps showing height, some not showing height, because people are like, well, I couldn't possibly fall in love with somebody who is not my desired height, and I don't want to be duped if I show up, and I'm wearing heels, and I'm taller than them. But then I just, I really want to get under that, you guys, because why? Why is that a problem? If this is your perfect person, but they're an inch or two shorter and it's not an issue for them. I mean, there are certainly the people, and I come from a very short family, y'all. Uh, there are certainly people who have a have sort of a defensive stance from being short and moving through the world. I know someone who's a short person who has a short son and a short dad. It's not as easy to move through the world when you're short. I mean, first of all, you can't reach things. <laughs> I have step stools in every room. But second of all, the world perceives you differently. And some people wear that and carry that into dating and some people don't. But the fact that you would just put up a barrier just because of height seems absolutely ridiculous to me. And I really want you to do the work. I want you to unpack if this is you, where does that come from? Can you connect that preference for someone who is tall to a relationship role model, a, you know, a movie or book or TV show that you saw, a past relationship, someone being in your ear, like someone told you that being tall, whether verbally or with their actions, that being tall was desired. And then you continue, our confirmation bias continues to pull in the same thing. So we're like, okay, yeah, that's what I'm attracted to. I, I 
was attracted to that person, so now I'm looking for that again. And then we continue to attract the same thing. But I got to tell you that height, it really does not correlate to the qualities that you actually need in a partner. And as this article states, it is the byproduct of outdated gender norms. And we could do a whole episode on that. But I won't today. Maybe we'll save that for later when we're talking about F the Fairy Tale. I'll leave you with a quote from the article. A height preference can sound like a benign dating habit, but it can quickly become an implicit judgment. Short King Spring, y'all. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Dedeker, Emily, and Jace will be here with me to talk about healthy communication, defining the rules of your partnership, and their new book, Multi-Amory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. Stick with us. My friends, my friends, if you are on the dating apps and your profile is not working for you, this is, a, this is like a limited time offer that I have a free gift for you that will help you revitalize your dating profile, help you reprogram the algorithm, and draw in the dates that are right for you. I have profile writing prompts. I have plug-and-play templates. I have a video tutorial on how to choose the right pictures. And I'm going to get you, and I'm going to get your profile all zhuzhed up. But it's free for a limited time only. So make sure you check it out at datesandmates.com. It's called the Profile Starter Kit. You just go to datesandmates.com, scroll down till where you see the Profile Starter Kit, put in your email, and it will be right there waiting for you in your inbox in an instant download for free. But get it this month because it will become one of my paid programs very shortly, and I don't want you to miss out on this free goodness. Lovers, meal prep in my family is not easy. My husband is a vegetarian. I am now what I would call keto curious. <laughs> and my kids are basically meat and potatoes people. And it's fine when we're going out to eat, but we all know that a home-cooked meal is the best. And I couldn't do it all without Green Chef. Green Chef has options for every lifestyle. They have keto, protein-packed, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, and gluten-free. And now they're offering even more customization than ever before. So in addition to swapping proteins into any meal that features chicken, beef, or salmon for organic ground beef, organic chicken, wild-caught sockeye salmon. Now you can also add chicken or fish to select vegan and veggie recipes each week for an added protein boost. Or if your husband's a vegetarian and your kids are proteinitarians and you're somewhere in the middle, you can mix and match it and make it work for you. Plus, I am all about their fast and fit recipes. They're all under 750 calories and they're ready in 25 minutes or less. And it cuts down in meal prep because they have pre-portioned and prepped ingredients, including pre-measured sauces, spices, and dressing. And this is something that I have been hoping and wishing and praying for for a long time. Do not judge me because I do not have time for all of the mise en place, okay? And you don't either, let's be honest, because we need to get to work on your spring fling, hot girl, or guy, summer, or whatever is going into your dating plan right now. We got to be efficient here. <laughs> oh, and by the way, did your trainer also tell you that you need to eat more protein? I know that's not just me. Green Chef has got you with Protein Packed. That's their newest collection of recipes for a high-protein diet. They have three weekly menu items to choose from. Each one has at least 
40 grams of protein per serving, including their almond-crusted barramundi. Can we talk about that? Barramundi? Mm, mm, chef's kiss. You need this deliciousness in your life, okay? Go to greenchef.com slash datesandmates60 and use the code dates, A-N-D-M-A-T-E-S, 60, to get 60% off plus free shipping. Again, the only way to get this Green Chef hookup of 60% off plus free shipping is if you go to greenchef.com slash datesandmates60 and use the code datesandmates60. Check for the link in the show notes. I am here with the terrific trio, Jace, Emily, and Dedeker. They created the Multi-Amory podcast in 2014 to raise awareness, provide approachable resources, and combat the stigma faced by people in non-traditional relationships. Together, they've been featured in numerous publications, including NPR, Vice, Huffington Post, Oprah Daily, Cosmopolitan, and Elle. In addition to their national tours, they've presented at the Google campus in Seattle, and they have been keynote speakers and presenters at numerous conferences. I've seen them speak at conferences. I've been on their podcast before, and I know you're in for a real treat as they talk about their book, Multi-Amory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships, which is out now. Please help me give big smooches to Jace, Emily, and Dedeker. Thank you so much. Like the most smooches at once, do you mean? <laughs> yes, simultaneously. Oh, so glad to be a first for you, Demona. So honored. You guys helped me uh, come out of my my shell a little bit. And, and certainly you've done that for many years with your podcast and helping people really figure out what they want in relationships and how to get their needs met. And now you have a new book. Multi-Amory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships, which there's just so much in here. I literally have pages and pages of notes. Oh, that's great. First of all, it's so great. I just want to kind of get everybody up to speed, first of all, on where you began the Multi-Amory podcast. So back in 2013, Jace and I were in a monogamous relationship and we actually decided to open it up. And from there, we found two other people, and that was uh, Dedeker and also a partner of hers that I started dating. The four of us kind of formed a quad at that point. And then from that, it became a triad that sort of also went away. But we decided to create a podcast because we were interested in finding out more about non-monogamy. Non-monogamy is something that there wasn't a lot of resources about at that time. And now there are a ton, but at the time there wasn't too much out there. And so we were like, yeah, let's let's figure out more about this and put it out there into the world. And so from there, nine years later, here we are. And we finally decided to also create a book. Um, and that book is kind of the culmination of the last nine years of what our show has become. Yeah. And so uh, the relationship between the three of us also continued to shift and change. So like we're not in a triad together anymore. You know, Emily's been monogamous for several years. Jason and I still identify as non-monogamous. And that reflected also in the show itself that we started out creating a show that was going to be special relationship weirdo advice for special relationship weirdos. And then over time, we started to find that oh, a lot of this advice is just about good relationship in general, whether you're monogamous, non-monogamous, sometimes going even beyond whether you're in a romantic relationship or not. And so, you know, now it's morphed into, you know, the way that we describe the show is that it's a research-backed relationship advice show that 
centers or includes non-traditional relationships, but not exclusively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, having been on the show before and spoken with you all a number of times, I definitely see see that evolution and see it's it's interesting because I I first started to write about non-monogamy probably I would say about seven years ago I started to see mainstream media more interested in the topic and I I don't know if it's now at the point where non-monogamy is more normalized more um I don't know, m- more in the conversation or more of an option for people. I'm curious to hear from you, Jace, since the time you all started the podcast, do you think that the the ideas around non-monogamy have shifted? And what do you see as the biggest misconceptions about non-monogamy that still are prevalent in today's dating culture? Uh, I guess I'll start with the the second part first. And so as far as the biggest misconceptions... I think that this has is maybe just starting to improve a little bit, but the biggest misconception, and this is shows up in all of the media coverage, both in terms of you know polyamorous or non-monogamous characters on you know fictional shows, as well as reporting on you know real life throuples or whatever they want to call it. My hard-hitting article for BET.com in, in twenty oh, really? yes. seventeen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that. Um, that basically the the issue is that one misconception is that it's always this group relationship because we tend to feature things like thruples or quads where it's like, whoa, look, these people all live together. It's like a couple, but they're all in this group relationship. Wow. So weird. And the reality is that while that exists within non-monogamy and polyamory, it is much more rare than the, the normal one, which is just that we have separate interconnected two-person relationships. So like Dedeker and I being in a relationship, she also has another partner, but you know, he and I will hang out sometimes when he's in town, but we're not all in a relationship. We don't ever have plans to all live together. That's not on the roadmap. That's not the goals. Other people I've dated, that's a separate relationship too that Dedeker knows about and she might meet those people, but we're not all in this big group relationship. And I think that's the biggest misconception that's still around a lot today is this idea that, oh gosh, do you have to have a whole like committee meeting to approve some new member to join your, your <laughs> commune or whatever? And while some people may want that, that is by far the minority of people doing any kind of non-monogamy. We've seen way too many episodes of Sister Wives. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like committee meeting. Well, one thing that I discovered in in my learning journey around, um, we'll say around non-monogamy, one thing as I was interviewing couples that kept coming up was this, the importance of communication and the foundation of communication for the relationship. And I think that's something that carries over also into monogamous relationships like everyone everyone has to focus on communication and get that right and i i saw that as also a big theme in your book in your multi-amory essential tools for modern relationships book so let's get into a little bit of the the nitty-gritty here and let's talk about what you've learned both from your time in non-monogamous relationships and also emily as someone now who is in a monogamous relationship, 
this is a like a big question because there's so much here in the book, but what do you think is at the core for good communication? What's the first step? I think it's really important to be able to look inward at your own history with how you communicate with others. And that's from, you know, your childhood and the way that your parents may have communicated with you, the way that you communicate with your friends and family. And that may kind of morph and evolve into the way that you communicate with your partner or partners as well. I think uh, just one of the really fundamental and early tools that we talk about in our book is the Triforce of Communication. And that's a really simple one just because it is literally telling a partner or another person what it is that you need out of a conversation. So, so many of us will jump right to, I need to give this person advice or I need to fix a situation because they're in turmoil or they're in conflict. And so you're able to say to someone, no, actually, I just want love and support right now. Or no, I just want to get something off of my chest. Or yes, I really do need that advice right now. So it's being able to sort of get really granular about your communication and over-communicate, as it were, or meta-communicate about your communication. <laughs> I love that, meta-communicate. So let's break it down for folks, because you you kind of threw out the term triforce of communication, but this is probably new for uh, our listeners. What do you mean by that? What is the triforce of communication? And I heard it was based on a Zelda. Zelda video game? Yeah. Yeah. All of us are big uh, nerds. (laughs) We're definitely Zelda fans. Uh, So Triforce, it just means like three different types of communication. So try like three. Um, And so there's Triforce number one, which is that I'm just going to tell someone something. I just want to get it off of my chest. Triforce number two is I want love and support. And then Triforce number three is that I need, you know, help with this. I let's let's collaborate here. Let's problem solve. Okay. So, and would you say these these three triforces are happening all in within one conversation or you figure out for each situation how to approach it with your partner? Right. I mean, they might all happen in one conversation, but the basic idea behind it is that all of our communication will fall into one of those three categories in terms of you know coming to, to have a talk with you. And it's, I'm going to want one of those three things. Maybe I don't quite know at first which one I want. So if you and your partner or the other person you're talking to both know about the Triforce, you could kind of start out saying like, look, I don't know what Triforce I'm going for yet. So like, why don't we start with number two? I just want you to like give me lots of affirmation or pity or sympathy or you know whatever it is appropriate for the situation. And then we'll see how I'm feeling and then I might ask for some advice. But don't jump to that yet. I don't know that I'm ready. Or it could be you start off saying, "Hey, look, you know, this is what happened with my day-to-day. I'm so frustrated by this." And your partner jumps into, "Oh, you should have done this or you should you should do this. That'll that'll fix the problem." And if that's what you're looking for, great. But if it's not, rather than this cycle that a lot of us fall into where one person says, oh, this was a problem I had. The other says, here's my advice. You know, you should have done this. You should do that. Oh, you shouldn't have done that thing. You should have done it this other way. And then the first person didn't really want advice. They wanted them to say, oh my gosh, that really sucks. Are you okay? 
And so instead they go, well, no, I don't think those things would have worked. And then you end up kind of getting in this frustrating fight where the person giving advice feels like all their advice is getting shot down. And the person who really wanted support is not getting it. And instead they feel like they're being told all the ways they did it wrong and how it's their fault. And so no one's happy after this conversation. So the idea is that knowing about the Triforce, whether you use the word Triforce <laughs> or not, just being aware that there's these different purposes for communication, that first person could start off, they start getting advice, and instead of going to just being frustrated, they go, oh, wait, I'm sorry, I should have said, I'm actually not looking for advice, I just want some support right now. And then hopefully the other person listens to that and, and gives that. There was a really beautiful article in the New York Times recently that was all about elementary school teachers coming back to school after lockdown and being given this framework for helping kids that were reintegrating back into a school environment. And basically they trained the teachers to like when a kid is going through something or coming to them with a complaint or having a breakdown to ask, okay, right now, do you want to be heard, hugged, or helped, which is essentially the Triforce of communication, right? And it translates the same when we're adults, you know? And so again, like Jace was saying, it doesn't have to be necessarily about using our shorthand, but finding some kind of shorthand and then also even having the awareness that this can be the source of some communication breakdowns in relationships. Yeah. And I also love how, the like with the example that Jace gave, how you can always you always have a chance to reset. I think sometimes we get in this, um, you know, we get in this cycle where it the communication gets away with us, gets away from us, and then we just feel like the momentum takes us into a direction and we're like, how did I even get here? Yeah. So it's a good reminder, and it's great to hear, Dedeker, that they're also doing this in schools, and I'm sure they're also teaching it in, you know, corporate communications. If they're not, they should be. You know, to, they should be. <laughs> to remind us that sometimes we do need to have, as you guys say um, in the book, communication about communication. And sometimes you do have to press pause and know that you don't just have to go along with the flow of the direction that things are headed. Like even sometimes my husband and I, we, we don't have a lot of conflicts in our relationship, but I think it's a lot of it is because we have meta communication as, as, uh, as you say in the multi-amory book. Um, we, we talk about what's happening as it's happening. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it, it literally just happened to us a few minutes ago. I was booking a trip and I was trying to get some information from him and he just got home from picketing on the Writers Guild picket lines. And he was wow. just not in a place where he could talk about trip planning when, you know, he was in a different emotional state. And he was like, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm sorry, honey, can can we pause and not do this right now? And I really needed that direct communication from him and like, this is what I need right now, but I need to hear what you need so that I'm not misreading the signals. I, I don't even feel like we've gotten a good uh, education on how to read the signals. I think this is something that comes up a lot from for our listeners that you know, we're, tr we're trying to read someone's body language or like, or the text you know, message, figure out what they're thinking. The last six text yeah, te messages please. with even less information. <laughs> yeah. And that's why being clear is so important. We talk about that right off the bat in that first chapter, because it, those body language cues, they're not always going to mean the same thing to every single person. 
And I think even if if you're neurodivergent, it definitely may not mean the same thing to someone who's, you know, neurotypical. So I think from that standpoint, it's super important to just be as clear verbally as you possibly can be about what it is that you need in, in any given moment. Yeah, for sure. And you brought up um, actually a really major, uh, major point that I think I don't always address on the show. Like, I may give advice that is for, that is general, that is for the masses, but there are a lot of people who are neurodivergent who may not understand it in the same way. And actually, I just got um, a DM from a listener who was asking that very thing, uh, how to be more confident in her communications when she is neurodivergent. Um, And you have a little bit in the book about that. Can Can you give some advice? Well, we can do our best. It's interesting because I would say that the three of us broadly identify as pretty on the more neurotypical end of the spectrum. But it is interesting that if you specifically look at the non-monogamous communities, you know, the the people who are living in kind of like the relationship margins or the fringes or quote unquote, sometimes I lovingly call us the relationship weirdos. There's a lot of neurodivergent people. It's like that, that Venn diagram has a lot of overlap. And what's really interesting is that, you know, that's a large part of our audience. And so often people who are different flavors of neurodivergent really appreciate clear structure a clear sense of like the rules of engagement for how we're going to engage in this conversation for people's intentions to be really clearly laid out, you know? So it's like often people who like don't enjoy having to look for subtext or read between the lines or things like that. And so it's interesting because while I think the three of us are more neurotypical than not, the tools that we've created and the content that we've created has been picked up by, you know, our very neurodivergent audience and really run with And I think that like that's influenced the content that we've created of like creating communication tools that are much more structured and maybe eliminate some of the ambiguity that we have around these things. Now, to get more specific, you know, there was a period of several years where I was dealing with pretty bad PTSD, which falls under the umbrella of neurodivergence. You know, I'm a survivor of intimate partner violence. And so I had this this journey of several years that went from you know, not only leaving that relationship, but then, you know, dealing with this kind of unexpected like six month lag time before any PTSD symptoms showed up, which I've since learned is actually quite common with traumatic experiences. And then never having this experience before in my life, right, of like all these weird physical symptoms, mental symptoms, like emotional ups and downs that I could not predict and I did not understand. And especially as someone who Um, you know, I think a primary characteristic of mine is like considering myself to be a very like, uh, controlled, well put together person to suddenly have my brain acting in ways that I really didn't understand was like really disconcerting for me, you know? And so I kind of had to go on my own healing journey in therapy and specifically for me, somatic therapy was like really, really effective. But in the meantime, like I also had two partners 
who had never been with someone with like intense PTSD. They were also really struggling and scrambling and like trying to find resources. And I know, Jace, you shared that there's a surprising lack of resources for partners of people with trauma or who are dealing with PTSD, or at least those resources were not very satisfying to you at the time. Um, and so not only did it mean that I had to really get curious about like what's going on inside me, you know, I had to go check out the books and resources and talk to my therapist and kind of learn from that perspective, but in my relationships, had to find new ways of communicating around these things, right? So the story that I share in the book is, you know, and this is an example of our microscripts tool that we developed on the show, but basically kind of as I was starting to finally get into some really effective therapy for working through the PTSD, it was a really challenging time. Like my nervous system was very sensitive. Like I would find weird things would set me off or trigger me or I'd suddenly feel really weird, even though maybe something my partner said was actually really benign and, and you know, not something that should have triggered me, quote unquote, should have triggered me. And so, you know, Jace and I came up with this microscript, just this like short little dialogue to follow, where basically if I was feeling that particular way, if I was starting to feel a trigger coming on, I would just tell him, hey, by the way, right now I'm feeling like a puffer fish. And that was just because that was true. That was like the best thing that I could come up with. Because like, I, I, there was, it was such an overwhelming emotional, physical, mental experience that I didn't want to necessarily have to sit down and be like, well, let me explain to you like how I'm sweating. And then I'm also having this particular flashback and then I'm having this weird emotion. And then, you know, like I didn't want to have to unpack all that. And so I just shortened it to this really short little script of, I feel like a puffer fish right now. And then his part of the script was to be like, okay, do you want me to go put on some fish gloves or do you want me to give you some space? And, and so for what we knew that meant was either like, okay, no, like keep engaging with me just gently, uh, you know, and be kind to me, or it really was, okay, just give me some space. Right. I, I would, I would clarify a little bit that the fish gloves we're imagining like some like chain mail, like real <laughs> tough gloves for handling oh, the spiky fish, fish. Right. Yes. So, so I think it was more about the, like, should I kind of put on my armor to not take your behavior so personally mm -hmm. and still try to engage mm -hmm. with you or is this, you want some space to deal with this and you don't want me messing with your spikies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And that was something that was really, really effective for us. And I mean, I don't think I've had to whip out that microscript in quite a long time since the therapy that I did was really effective. But we found that this is something that particularly people who are neuro neurodivergent in our audience have used a lot in the sense that sometimes if your brain doesn't quite work or process or communicate in the same way as your partners, and this has caused a lot of habitual patterns, some not great feeling patterns in your communication, just finding some kind of shorthand to get you through that hump can be really helpful, right? Even if it's some kind of shorthand around being able to tell your partner, okay, I'm going into like masking mode right now, which for neurodivergent people is like, okay, I'm exerting energy to conform to what the social rules of this situation is and that's stressing me out but I just want to let you know that's what's going on right instead of us having to get into a 30 minute conversation before we go to the birthday party right so those are kind of the examples you know and I feel like the theme underneath not just doing something like creating a microscript but also a lot of the tools in our book and the tools that we've developed over the years is like you were saying Demona is not having this sense of like oh I, things are just stuck this way I just have to go along with 
the patterns, the conditioning that I was raised with or that my partner was raised with. Like I just have to sit in perpetual frustration around the ways that we communicate, but like feeling a sense of empowerment, right? That ideally I'm in relationship with someone who is an equal collaborator and a team member. And so we can figure out what are the tools that we want to use? What's the structure we want to use? How can we create a cute little idiosyncratic microscript in joke that's going to help us get through this set in pattern, right? So like really, I think for us, it comes down to being able to empower folks to be able to communicate instead of just feeling stuck and passive. Mm-hmm. And I can co-sign on all that as I, I have a child who is neurodivergent mm-hmm. and in his therapy that has been so crucial in just giving him the words to understand what's happening in his body and to be able to give us I I, I guess there are microscripts mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> since since you mm-hmm. I was like I didn't know that word before but you created it yeah. so <laughs> to give him a microscript so that he can communicate with us I can I can see how as a as a partner, that would be a really useful tool. And I just learned this term the other day. If you name it, you can tame it. Yes. <laughs> so yes. just wonderful. giving a name to it, yes. giving the puffer fish. And you like the puffer fish, you gave it a name, you gave it a visual, <laughs> you have you have a follow-up. So but just to give everyone like the straight takeaway from writing a microscript. This is basically just a short code for like a secret code between the two of you or the three of you or the four of you in communication. Mm -hmm. Um, So you identify the problem, you find the cue, you write the script, and then you repeat, repeat, repeat. And it may adapt and grow over time too, right? You might start off with it being a, a puffer fish or something. And then maybe at some point someone makes a joke about calling a puffer fish a a spiky ball. And so then you start saying, I'm a little spiky ball right now, or this is just a silly non-real example, but it may also evolve because that's part of what makes it work is that it's yours. It's something unique to your relationship. That's not, you're not just trying to look up some technical term for this thing, although I guess you could to start out, uh, but that it's like, there's this little seed of an inside joke there. So part of what makes it powerful is that it's also reminding you however many of you there are, this could be something your group of friends does, but it's reminding all of you, we have a special connection. And this is something we did together and we're here to support each other. Even if you're not not saying that, that's kind of built into it. Oh, that's such a loving frame. Hmm. Yeah, it's your own personal idiosyncratic language that you have with the people around you, which is really cool. And kind of it enables that relationship also. It shows like how special it is and how personal it is to you. Yeah, the people in your life should be able to understand you and support you in those moments. I mean, that's really, I think, um, what at its core, what partnership and friendship is all about. So there's another thing that came up a lot as I was doing my initial research on um, non-monogamy. So we talked communication. The other thing that kept coming up was boundaries. Um, some communication around boundaries, but, but let's talk about boundaries and what do you feel is most important, you know, whether you're in a monogamous or non-monogamous relationship, uh, what is most important to keep in mind when you're establishing boundaries with your partner or partners? I think a lot of people out there sort of conflate boundaries with things like rules or agreements or preferences or 
I'm going to put this limit on a partner to make sure that they don't do something that's going to ultimately hurt me or hurt the relationship. But we like to think of boundaries as things that are just entirely enforceable by you. And that is enabling you to advocate for yourself in the relationship. And so it's not something that you're doing to punish a partner, but rather something that you are doing to keep yourself safe. And it may hopefully in the healthiest of relationships be something that really doesn't happen that often, that you don't brush up against that often. But if you do find that that is happening, that maybe a boundary is being brushed up against over and over again, it may be time to sort of reevaluate that relationship. And we do say often on the show, it's okay to break up. That is, that doesn't necessarily mean a failure. It just may mean that this relationship isn't what you and the other person need. Emily, there was something you just said. <laughs> you were talking about the boundary being something that keeps you safe. And I can see that definitely as a visual, like, you know, what? why do we have boundaries, like physical boundaries in our life? It, it, it's like, why do we have a fence around our house? Well, it's to keep us safe, right? Um, but I paint a little clear of a picture for us around what that looks like in relationships to keep you safe in relationships. I The first thing that came to mind is something that we talk about in the book. Uh, say like you're in a conflict with your partner and you're you start yelling at one another, for instance, and you find that that really just continues to make you really upset and it escalates and it goes out of control. And so you realize, hey, like I need to put a boundary in place that if we start getting so upset that we start screaming at each other, I'm actually just going to leave the room and and go outside maybe and take a walk and calm down, calm my nervous system down because it's just getting activated over and over again in this moment. So it's not again to punish your partner or to stonewall or anything along those lines. It's just saying, hey, I know that for myself, I really don't do well in situations where somebody starts yelling or I start yelling. So to help myself in this situation, I'm going to leave the room for a while until I am not Mm. as activated. So that's just an easy example. And again, it's all done by you, not saying like you, my partner, have to do this thing. It's rather I'm doing this thing to help myself in this particular situation. We really do think that like the power in boundaries is not about making it about the other person. It's not about having to get their buy-in on something. It's not about forcing them to change their behavior. It's about what can you do to change your own behavior, right? It's all about what you can do because that's the area that you have the most control over, right? So it's for us, it's just a slight shift in how we think about boundaries that it really is about empowering yourself to take care of yourself. Even with all of these tools, even with um, setting boundaries, even with having good communication, not all relationships are perfect. Most of them <laughs> are not. And you're, you're, conflict is inevitable, right? You're going to have some conflict if you're moving through the world, especially with truth. And from that place of safety, like you were talking about, Emily, like being in touch with yourself and what your needs are, what you need to feel safe, you're eventually going to come to some place where somebody else's boundary or needs may be in conflict. Um, And I love in 
chapter six, you have the repair shop for mending and preventing conflict. Can you give us a little roadmap of what the <laughs> shop is and how it works? Yeah, basically the idea there is that, you know, after you've had some kind of conflict, like you were just describing, and not right during it, this is the tool for afterward, maybe the next day, right? We've kind of calmed down from it. And it's like, what just happened? How did we get in such a big fight? How do we move on from this? Whatever it is. And so the idea is that rather than you know, getting a bunch of dents in your relationship car that just gradually starts falling apart after each fight and eventually the doors are falling off and it's dangerous to drive. Instead, you're taking it to the repair shop and you're getting it fixed up and maybe even swapping out for even better parts. <laughs> so that's sort of the the idea there. Um, and what it is, is it's a, an acronym, as most of our tools are. Uh, so SHOP stands for Stories, History, ownership and prevention. And the idea is that together, the two of you go through each of those four steps to get a, first get a better understanding of the story as each of you understood it. Because often we think, oh, my experience of reality is truth, that is reality. Uh, and someone else might have a very different perception of how that happened. Even the facts might seem different to somebody else. Uh, that And so the first part is just getting clear on how did we each experience this? And then it's looking at how does that tie into each of our histories? So, you know, is this related to stuff that I've struggled with in other relationships? Is this related to stuff from my family of origin that I grew up with? Or is there something else going on in my life that this reminded me of, and that might have been why I reacted the way that I did, which then leads into the ownership, which is finding parts of it that each of you can own up to. And that's not, <laughs> I think for a lot of people were raised this idea that if you admit you did anything wrong, then you did everything wrong. And this is trying to get out of that mindset and instead saying, okay, can you own something in this? And can the other person own something in this so that you can both have that sense of, yeah, we were both involved in this. And maybe one person has more that they need to own up for than the other in this, but that both of you have something that you contributed to it so that you can feel like you're both empowered to then fix it, which leads to prevention. And that's where you bring in some of those other tools to say, how can we avoid this happening in the future? Is there a microscript that we could use here? Could we have used the Triforce of Communication a little bit better? Do we need to have a more regular check-in about this part of our lives? Do we need to reorganize how we divide up the chores around the house or you know, any number of things? And so that's that last step is how do we then make this even better so that we don't keep crashing into this same wall every time we drive? Thank you so much for joining me, Emily, Dedeker, and Jace. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at multiamory underscore podcast and get your copy of their new book. It's so fabulous, y'all. It's so comprehensive and it applies to anyone in any, in any style of relationship, traditional or otherwise. It's called Multiamory Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. You can find it at multiamory.com slash book. That's M-U-L-T-I-A-M-O-R-Y dot com slash book. The links will also be in the show notes. In a moment, I'll be back to answer this listener question. Help a brother out. Uh, my brother specifically. How do I get him back to dating? <laughs> Stick around. 
The questions have been pouring in. You know we're doing an all Dear Demona, all audio questions episode coming up in a few weeks. So the phone lines are open. The voice memos are open. But in the meantime, the DMs are also open. And this Instagram message came in from a listener named S. Dear Demona. Demona, help me. S says, hi, Demona. I'm trying to get my brother back into the dating pool. After a failed marriage and three kids later, he feels that he won't ever find love or have a family again. He feels like he's not going to find someone who will want a man with three kids. He's also afraid to be used and that people will only want him for his money. How do I approach this conversation to tell him that love is out there and just waiting for him when he's so down on himself and being negative? It's so sweet and kind that you want to help your brother because, you know, I actually got into this business. The first profile I wrote was for my cousin who had suffered a a terrible breakup. He was kind of a um, serial monogamist and he would have these peaks and valleys and he was in the deepest, darkest valley, honey. He uh, just couldn't comprehend being able to find another person again. And I said, what about online dating? And this is like back when online dating was still fairly new. So what about online dating? He was like, oh, I don't know. I tried that. It didn't work. (laughs) And I said, well, let's just look at your profile. Baby steps, right? And I looked at his dating profile. It was not saying at all what he wanted to put out into the world. It was not presenting the life that he was wanting to build with someone else. We refreshed his profile. Within three weeks, he met two women. He called me. He's like, I've I've only dated like one woman at a time my whole life. What do I do? Like he had so much abundance. And I just said, just take your time. Slow love, right? I've been preaching this since the beginning. Take your time. And eventually you'll want to date one, both, neither. But as long as you're upfront about it, this is all part of the process and the discovery. And he did end up marrying one of those two women and having two kids and building a life with them. So I tell you this story because I'm trying to first let you know, S, that people have their own timelines. And like with my cousin, I had to do baby steps. I couldn't I couldn't push the baby out of the nest right away. And you can't do it for him. He has to feel ready. And it sounds like there's some healing that he has to go through you know, you said he's afraid of being used. That tells me there probably was some trauma in that past relationship that he's still processing. And I know some dudes don't like therapy. I know some people, all in all, don't feel like they need it. But especially when you go through a major breakup or a, a life transition, a life event like this, therapy would really help getting those feelings out there and giving him the tools to be able to trust someone again. Because it doesn't matter how great your profile is. doesn't matter if you tell him to listen to dates and mates and he finds all of this information very useful and valuable and wants to get back out there. If he hasn't healed that part of himself that has that fear, that fear that if I open up my heart again, it's going to get stepped on. If that's still in there, he will attract more of that. And he will, he will crave that because that's what he knows. So that has to be healed first. And I, I do think you can heal and be dating at the same time, but you've got to be doing the work. 
right? As far as who will want a man with three kids? Like, let's do an experiment right now. Y'all, DM me. DM me at Damona Hoffman. If you, you would love to date a man with three kids, if he has a stable career and he is a good person, he has a good heart and he treats you well, would you date a man with three kids? DM me and let me know because I, I have to prove this wrong for your brother. We look at our stuff and we're like, who's going to want all this stuff? Because we are looking at the burden of it. He's looking at it attached to all of that trauma. Someone who comes into his life, maybe a woman who can have kids that always wanted kids of her own, or maybe a woman who has kids herself, or maybe just someone who loves him and can open their heart enough to envelop those three kids as well. Maybe there is someone out there that will see all that stuff and actually see it as a positive that you're a loving father, that you you provide for your family, that's extremely attractive to a lot of people. So you have to see all of your stuff, all of the stuff that you bring to the table as part of the package for you and the kind of thing that the right person will lean into. Sure, the wrong people will be repelled by it. And that's great. That is so great because we don't want them anyway. We don't want to waste your precious time with the the people who are not going to treat your kids well or the people who are going to come and take your money and drain your resources. Great. Let them be repelled by it. And let's just address this fear of someone's only going to want him for his money. I have to tell you, I've been doing this a long time. I find that people who have that fear are people that are leading with that in their dating life. That they have the fear, and yet that is the thing that they feel gives them value in dating. So they will drive their fancy car to the date. They will suggest an expensive place because they're trying to impress the other person because they are equating that money with love, with desirability. So you got to just take that out of the equation. You're going to take an Uber X to your next date or walk there. You know what? Take the bus even. I don't like let's let's get crazy. Let's let's just take that off the table completely. And, you know, I'm a big fan of slow love and having that first date just be one hour. It's just the check in. So don't do something expensive for the first one, two, three dates, and really see if you can build that relationship on a foundation that is not financial at all. Because if that is your fear, if that is entangled with your fear, that is, the, that is going to become your default. So if that's off the table, then you can just sit in front of that person and say, does this person see me? See who I am, what I offer with all my stuff, with all my kids, with all my, with all my baby mama drama, with all of that. So when he's ready, to do all that, you tell him, tell him to listen to this podcast, tell him to follow at Demona Hoffman and tell him we got him. We've got this. We're going to fill up his heart so that he can attract somebody who sees all of him, wants all of that, and is excited to build a new life with him. I told you it was going to be a live one. <laughs> that marks the end of episode 464 of Dates and Mates. As I said earlier, our All Dear Demona episode is coming up next Tuesday. 
the phone lines are still open. So you can give me a call, leave me a voice memo at 424-246-6255. Or you can leave me a voice memo on the socials. Just DM it to me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Instagram's the easiest for the voice memos. But anytime, day or night, you can call me, you can text me, you can message me, and I am here to help you navigate this wild world of modern love. Until next week, I wish you and your partners and your brother and everyone in your life happy dating.